Good evening. Let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this evening that we can gather together. We thank you for each and every one here, and we thank you for your word, your precious word. Uh, and we pray, Lord, uh, that you would uh, take your word and use it uh, mightily in our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had one of those days when it feels like everything is going wrong? A day when you are tempted to throw up your hands and cry out for relief. Picture a typical Monday morning. The alarm clock goes off, you stumble out of bed, only half awake, and you make your way to the kitchen to brew that life-saving tonic, coffee. But lo and behold, the coffee maker stages a protest. You press the brew button, but nothing happens. You try again, and this time it erupts like a volcano. You throw your hands up in frustration. And then let's fast forward to the moment when you're stuck in traffic, late for that morning meeting. Your GPS, which usually has the navigational prowess of a seasoned explorer, suddenly goes rogue. It insists that you take a shortcut that feels more like an off-road adventure and you grip the steering wheel and cry out in frustration. By lunchtime, you've dealt with your fair share of disasters, but you're determined to grab a quick bite to eat. You head to your favorite cafe, only to be met with a long line at the counter. As you inch forward, you cry out in frustration. Now these everyday frustrations may seem perhaps amusing, but I hope you can see where we're going. Frustration is only but one way we can respond to trials. The Israelites were doubtless feeling trapped in their situation. This was life and death. When we read this passage, the nation of Israel were uncertain of their very survival. They cried out to God, blaming him, and revealed their ungrateful hearts as they compared this affliction to their Egyptian slavery. The troubles of a broken coffee machine are light and trivial compared to some other trials that perhaps you are going through. Perhaps life is full of profound despair for you, and perhaps trials bear down upon you endlessly, and all you can think is that you need a way out of this. Maybe even tonight you want to be left alone from your trials and tribulations. As we read on, I hope we will see just how God responds to our cries for deliverance, and how his response may not always be what we expect but it is always filled with purpose and grace. For the Israelites, God's response to their cry was not to leave them alone, but to lead them through the impossible, parting the very sea itself in divine deliverance. It's a powerful reminder that when we feel most overwhelmed, God is at work, making a way when there seems to be no way. So first, trapped in trials. A few chapters ago in Exodus 12, in verse 40, we read, Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day it came to pass, that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out from the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. 
There has been some debate about how we've come to this figure of 430 years, as it would seem that the Israelites only spent 215 years in Egypt after Jacob is reunited with Joseph and meets Pharaoh. But the nation of Israel did not begin with Jacob. It began indeed with Abraham. And the sojourning began when God made a covenant with Abraham as he left Haran. So it's been 430 years of sojourning. And now in chapter 14, we find the Israelites at a pivotal moment in their journey out of Egypt. They've just been liberated from the harsh grip of slavery. It's a time of rejoicing. However, their newfound freedom is about to be met with an unforeseen trial. We're told here that God intentionally led the Israelites to a place where there seemed to be no escape, a location specifically chosen by God himself. They camped between Migdol and the sea, with a vast expanse of water blocking their path to freedom. It must have been a breathtaking sight, but not in a positive way. The sea represented an insurmountable obstacle, an immense body of water that they could not cross on their own. And not only that, Pharaoh, with his heart hardened once again, had a change of heart. He pursued the Israelites with his army, and they found themselves trapped by the waters in front and the formidable army closing in from behind. They were cornered with no way out. And in verse 8, we read, The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued after the children of Israel. Now, in our own lives, I'm sure we can relate to being trapped by our circumstances. Maybe it's a moment when financial burdens become overwhelming when relationships seem irreparable, or when the weight of responsibility leaves us feeling utterly trapped. The Israelites were certainly trapped. There was no clear path forward. I wonder, in the face of these trials, if you cry out to God, desperately wanting him to change our circumstances, to remove us, perhaps, from the challenges that we are surrounded with. It's in these times that we might say, leave me alone, God, and let me escape from this. But God's response to our cries is not always what we expect, and his plans often go beyond our immediate desire for escape. God doesn't send a trial once a week, or at the most, once a day. Have you ever considered that the trials of life aren't confined to just occasional moments or specific events? In fact, there are constant presence in our lives. According to archaeology and other scholarly studies, there has never been a year in human history without some form of conflict, a battle or a war happening somewhere on earth. Battles and wars are commonplace in human history. And brethren, with us, there isn't a moment on any given day that we aren't facing some trial. Often, we may not be even fully aware of it immediately. They're present in every conversation we have, in everything we hear or read, in everything we see. From the moment we wake in the morning until the thoughts that occupy our minds at night, trials are ever-present in our lives. If sin hadn't come into the world, trials would be non-existent. There would be no need for trials if man had not fallen. But once man fell into sin, it altered how life would be lived. Trials in life would come, 
to call man back to God, to bring conviction to man, to deal with man, to try the heart of man. Do you remember the first trial that Adam and Eve had after they fell into sin in Genesis 3? There certainly was the trial before of the two trees in the garden. That was an obvious one. But there was a trial right after they sinned. What will Adam and Eve do with their guilt? What will they do with the plague of heart affliction? And what did they do? They ran. They hid. They tried to cover themselves from one another and ultimately from God. Trials not only come to us before we fail, and then we fail, but what of the trial that comes immediately after that? What are you going to do with the realization or conviction of it? Are you going to run to God? Are you going to get it right with God and turn to him? Trials, testings come in every aspect of our lives. If we ask when do they come, the answer is as often as we have a thought or say a word or do an action. And then if we ask why do they come, James chapter 1 says that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Trials produce in us spiritual growth. They reveal our weaknesses, our sins, areas that are in need of growth. Romans 5 encourages us to glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And ultimately, trials bring glory to God. When we endure with faith, God is glorified. In 2 Corinthians 12, we read that Christ's grace is sufficient for all of us, for his strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, the Apostle Paul wrote, would he glory in his infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon him. And to whom do trials come? Trials can and will come to everybody, even to young children. I've noticed something even in my interactions with our Sunday school class. As teachers or as parents, we feel a tremendous responsibility to protect children from sin's allures in this world. And yes, there's that. But there's one thing that we must never protect children from, and that is God. So often, we can be afraid for children to go through trials. Maybe we don't want God to deal with them. Maybe we'd like to protect them from pain, and from affliction, and from trouble, and from suffering. Certainly, we must do everything we can to protect them from sin and from the world. But there is no way we can protect them from trouble, from affliction, for trials must come to everyone. James chapter 1 also says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. This happens to all, young and old. Proverbs 20 says, Even if a child is known by his doings, whether his work be pure, and whether it be right. For a child, when they're in trouble, when they're caught doing something wrong, the trial of the child is under conviction. How do they respond? How do they react? Even a child, the Bible says, is known by his doings. 
Proverbs 22 says, Foolishness is bound in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. And how do you reveal that part? It's the prompting of the experiences of life. There was some problem, some action, there was some reaction that had to be dealt with. Now, I know I'm not a parent, but from what I can observe, a parent must be actively involved in the afflictions and troubles of a child, sometimes protecting, other times leading in these circumstances, so that there would be right teaching. This is part of the child. Imagine a group of children playing in a park. They're filled with curiosity and a thirst for adventure. They spot a big colourful sign that reads, Do not enter, private property. And what happens next? Like magnets drawn to metal, they are irresistibly drawn towards that forbidden territory. As they venture into private property, they encounter trials in the form of unexpected challenges. Thorny bushes, uneven terrain, unexpected obstacles. They stumble, they fall, they get scratched, and they learn some tough lessons along the way. Now what's important here is not just the trials, but how these children react and handle the circumstances. Some might complain loudly, why is this happening to us? Others may get discouraged and want to give up, while a few might decide to turn back. Like these children, we too encounter trials, obstacles, challenges, difficulties on our life's journey. Perhaps maybe these trials come when we least expect them, much like the thorny bushes. The key is not to question why these trials happen, but rather how we react to them and the actions we take in the face of adversity. Just as these children had choices to complain, to give up, or to persevere, we have choices when we're confronted with life's trials. In verse 10, we read that the Israelites' initial joy upon leaving Egypt had given way to dread. The reality of their situation was sinking in. They were seemingly trapped with nowhere to go. They were trapped between the sea and the army. It was a moment of great vulnerability. And this dread culminated in the cry that echoes through verse 11. Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? It's a cry of desperation, of frustration, of anguish. In their fear, they turned to Moses, the leader who had brought them out of Egypt, and said, leave us alone. You've led us to our death here in the wilderness. We too have had similar experiences in the face of life's trials. When we find ourselves trapped by adversity, when our problems seem insurmountable, we might cry out to God in despair, questioning why we're facing such difficulties. We may even question God's wisdom or his plan for our lives, just as the Israelites did. Blaming God for the situation they found themselves in and forgetting very quickly of God's grace and power demonstrated in bringing them out of Egypt. It's during these moments that we yearn for release from these trials, for God to intervene in a way that removes us from our trials. We might pray, God, take this away. 
Brethren, while our instinct may be to seek immediate escape from our troubles, God may have a different plan, one that often involves guiding us through our challenges rather than removing them. And so we come to Moses' message. Amid the Israelites' cry for freedom, Moses steps forward to deliver God's response. In verse 13 we read, Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians who, whom you have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. In these words, Moses gives us three essential instructions. Fear ye not. Don't be afraid, Moses says. He is reassuring them. When we face trials, it's natural to be afraid, to be consumed by worry and doubt. But in the face of a trial and being consumed with fear, Moses reminds us that we serve a God who is greater than our circumstances, a God who is faithful and steadfast. We can take solace in knowing that we are not alone, for the Almighty God is with us. He also says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Moses encourages the Israelites to stand their ground and remain steadfast in their faith. One commentator put it this way, despair will cast you down, keeping you from standing. Fear will tell you to retreat. Impatience will tell you to do something now. Presumption will tell you to jump into the Red Sea before it is parted. Yet, as God told Israel, he often tells us to simply stand still and hold our peace as he reveals his plan. Often God's response to our cries is not to immediately remove our problems, but rather to guide us through them. Brethren, God calls you and I to have faith in his plan, even when it seems like there's no way out. Our challenges can be opportunities for God to work wonders in our lives and strengthen our faith. Thirdly, the Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. This is perhaps the most striking part of Moses' message. He assures them that the battle belongs to the Lord. In other words, God is not just our ally in times of trouble. He is our mighty warrior. We don't need to carry the weight of our burdens or devise elaborate escape plans alone. Instead, we are called to be still and trust that God will fight on our behalf. This response from Moses teaches us that God's response to our cries is not always about immediate relief. Instead, it's often about growing our faith, teaching us to trust him, and showing us that his ways are higher and more excellent than our own. But brethren, as we hear Moses' words to the nation of Israel, we should also marvel about how Jesus Christ is ultimately the more powerful and more perfect answer to our trials and troubles in life. In Jesus Christ, we see the ultimate fulfillment of the words, fear ye not. Jesus not only tells us not to fear, but he demonstrated on the cross that he can conquer sin. He can conquer death itself and bring perfect peace to our troubled souls. In Moses' instruction to stand still and see the Lord's salvation, we see in Jesus Christ 
the perfect, steadfast Saviour, who stood in the face of temptation, persecution, and even the death of the cross, all the while in full and perfect obedience to his heavenly Father's divine plan. Through his sacrifice and through his resurrection, Jesus Christ provides the way to eternal life and salvation from sin's grip. And in Moses' instruction that the Lord shall fight for you, we see in Jesus Christ one who fought the ultimate battle against sin and death for us, defeating them once and for all and securing our redemption. When we place our trust in Jesus, we can truly hold our peace, knowing that the battle is already won and we have the ultimate victory through Jesus Christ. And God is able. The moment we've been waiting for, this miracle at the Red Sea. It's an account of God's power, his unexpected methods, his incredible deliverance. Israel is standing on the edge of the sea, trembling with fear as the Egyptian army approaches. They've cried out to God, longing for freedom from their desperate situation. And then something extraordinary happens. In verse 21, we read that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and, at God's command, a strong east wind began to blow all the night long. Imagine the sheer force of that wind, the roar of the waters, the astonishment of Israel as they witnessed the impossible unfolding before their very eyes. The waters of the sea parted, creating a dry path right through the middle. It was a divine highway to freedom. Now this is where the story takes an unexpected twist. Israel didn't escape under the cover of darkness, sneaking past their enemies. No, they walked boldly through the midst of the sea, with walls of water towering on either side. God wasn't just rescuing the Israelites. God was doing it in a way that left no doubt it was him at work. And as Israel reached the other side, the Egyptian army followed them into the sea. And when morning broke, the waters returned to their place, drowning the pursuing Egyptians. God's deliverance was not only miraculous, but it was also complete. The very threat that had pursued them was utterly defeated. The sea that stretched before them, seemingly insurmountable, was now behind them, separated, separating them from Egypt. So what does this teach us? It reminds us that God's deliverance often comes in ways we could never have imagined. When we cry out to God in our times of desperation, we may have a particular solution or escape plan in mind. But God in his wisdom has a different way, a way that reveals his everlasting and infinite power, love and great, great faithfulness. Dear brethren, instead of asking God to leave us alone, we should look to leave alone our preconceived notions of how God should deliver us and trust that his ways are higher, his plans more excellent than we can ever imagine. His deliverance often exceeds our expectations, just as it did for Israel at the sea. There wasn't anything miraculous about the waters themselves. It was God's power that made it possible. Similarly, it's not our works 
that saves, but it is God's grace and power. When we stand firm in faith, even in the face of trials, God can part the seas and lead us to victory. He's not just our deliverer. He is the Lord of lords and King of kings who fights on our behalf. The Israelites had to step out into the parted waters according to God's leading. Isn't that a wonderful picture of faith? They emerged from the sea as a new nation. Similarly, we became a new creature in Christ, born again. Now, some of you might be thinking, that's an incredible story, but it happened such a long time ago. Can we really expect God to do the same in our lives today? It's a valid question, and I want to remind you that the Bible, God's Word, this precious book, transcends time and is just as re relevant for us today. It reveals not only the past, but the present and the future. And when we consider this sea crossing, we see how it points to the timeless and unchanging truth found in the gospel. Imagine you're facing a seemingly insurmountable obstacle, a trial that feels impossible to overcome, as the sea must have seemed to Israel. Perhaps it's a challenging relationship, a daunting health issue, financial struggles, or a goal that feels just out of reach. Well, the God who parted the sea thousands of years ago is that same God who is with us today. His power has not diminished. His willingness to watch over us and protect us has not wavered. While we may not witness parted seas in our time, we can experience God's miraculous intervention in different ways, for he continues to work in our lives through what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross and through the Holy Spirit, which is given to all those who believe on his Son. Sometimes his deliverance doesn't involve a grand spectacle, but it unfolds through a series of events, through the support of loved ones, through the strength granted by God himself, or through unexpected opportunities that open before you. We call that God's grace. You see, God's deliverance isn't limited to the spectacular and extraordinary. It can manifest in the small moments of our lives, in the people he places in our path, in the strength he provides when we need it the most. When we face our own Red Sea moments and when we cry out to God for deliverance, brethren, we must trust that he hears us, trust that he will work in ways that may surprise us, trust that he will work in ways unique to our situation. His deliverance may not come in the form of a parted sea, but it will be equally miraculous, for it is rooted in the unchanging love and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a few lessons for now that I wanted to close with. Firstly, God's timing and methods may differ from ours. The first lesson we can draw is that God's timing and God's methods may not align always with our desires for a quick escape. Israel were undoubtedly desperate for immediate relief from their predicament, but God had a different plan and one that unfolded in his perfect timing. 
Likewise, in our own lives, we often yearn for quick solutions to our problems, for immediate relief from our difficulties. We might cry out, God, leave me alone. But God in his infinite wisdom may have a different schedule in mind. His timing is purposeful and his methods are designed to refine our character and deepen our faith. So, when we find ourselves waiting for deliverance, brethren, we must trust that God's will prevails. Just as a skilled artist sees the bigger picture while we may only see a single brushstroke, God's perspective encompasses all our moments. Be assured that when our prayers appear and unanswered, God's timing is not bound by our clocks, and his ways, though unsearchable, ultimately lead us to the path of his divine plan. In our earthly impatience, let us find solace in knowing God's timing and God's methods are far wiser than our own. Secondly, trust in God's guidance and deliverance. When Israel faced the impossible, God did not abandon them. Instead, he provided a way that they could never have foreseen. Likewise, when we're confronted with trials that seem insurmountable, we must remember that God is with us, guiding us through. We may not always understand his methods, and his deliverance may look different from what we anticipated, but we can trust that his plan is always for our good, and this truth is both humbling and comforting. When you face moments of feeling trapped or overwhelmed or desperate for escape, remember that God is working in your life. Trust in his timing, have faith in his methods, and know that his deliverance, though it may take unexpected forms, is always for your ultimate good. Perhaps you're going through a trial right now. It may not be one that traps you, but it's a trial nonetheless. Perhaps you're searching for direction and purpose in your life. Proverbs 3 says to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Just as the Israelites faced the Red Sea with no clear path forward, trust that God will direct your path even when life's direction seems uncertain. Perhaps you have struggles of family, a broken home, or strained relationships, or parenting challenges. Brethren, God calls us to extend forgiveness and seek reconciliation. Fractured bonds can be healed, and families can find unity once more if we follow God's way. Or maybe your trial is financial, perhaps the loss of jobs, debt piling up, financial crisis after crisis. Psalm 55 says to cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. The Bible teaches us to be wise stewards, but he also assures us that God is our provider and will supply all our need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Or maybe you're grappling with the stresses of peer pressure. 1 Timothy 4 says to let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. 
Just as one faithful man led an entire nation through the Red Sea, you too can lead by example in your faith and values in Jesus Christ. When we say trust in God, what do we mean? What does that actually look like? It might look like surrender, laying all your fears and worries before God and entrusting your life to him. Or it might look like patience as the Israelites waited as the seas parted. Or it might look like boldness, like Moses as he lifted up his rod in faith. Or it might look like forgiveness, the willingness to forgive even as Christ forgave. Israel, when they were trapped between the sea and the army, cried out for deliverance, longing to be free from their desperate circumstances. Their response, although reckless and foolish, reminds us and teaches us of God's grace. We've learnt that just like Israel, our tendency is to seek immediate escape from life's challenges when we feel overwhelmed. Pharaoh, representing the worldly powers and trials in our life, can be an overwhelming obstacle to a victorious life. But Moses, that great mediator between God and his people, reveals to us and points to Jesus Christ, the ultimately perfect saviour. Jesus is our rock, our defender and our shield. And God's response to our cries is a masterclass in faith and trust. He may not always remove us from our problems, or remove our problems from us. But he guides us through them, strengthening our faith and showing us that his ways are higher, his plans more excellent for us. So here's the challenge, dear friends, when you find yourself in a situation when all you want to say is leave me alone. Remember Exodus 14 and remember the sea. Trust in God's sovereignty, his timing, his methods. Have faith that his deliverance, though it may not look as you expect, is always for your ultimate good. I'd like to close with two passages of scripture. In Isaiah chapter 41 verse 10, we read, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus speaking to the disciples says in verse 19, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Amen.